a British TV podcast with Chrissy and Ryan. News, reviews, what's on TV this week, DVD releases, and special features all about British TV. Hello and welcome to British TV podcast show number 26. Happy Potiversary, Ryan. That's right. This is our six month anniversary. That is really hard to believe. It is kind of, isn't it? Oh, well. And I think of how many hours I've put in editing this thing. I, I'm so jealous of podcasts that just, they talk for an hour and a half, they turn the recorder on, and they put it on the internet. Yeah. Like, oh, that would be so nice. I'm coming up on 10 years with both my jobs, too, and that blows my mind. Wow. I was in my early 30s when I started working there. My gosh, wow. Now I'm in my teenaged 30 years, I guess. <laughs> just add a teenager to 30. That's sort of where I am now, but... Anyway, everything I'm being silly because I'm so tired. <laughs> oh. Anyway, I'm Ryan in Seattle. I'm Chrissy in Seattle. I went to see Hot Tub Time Machine this over yeah. the weekend, and I probably I liked it because I love time travel stories, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I think I would have liked it a lot more if I knew anything about '80s pop music. Oh, I knew all about it. I was working in a record shop in the '80s. I have, That's where my knowledge is strongest. I hate to say it, but my musical education ended mm-hmm. in about 1976, just before disco came in. Yeah, if it's on a soundtrack, I don't know what it is. And my mom's very favorite music of any era is the 80s. She just loved it and still does. She likes to listen to 80s New Wave or even the softer tunes from there. She just loves it. Your mom is hipper than I am? Yeah. God, that's really scary. I'm the first to admit I don't know anything about music. Okay. Well, how, otherwise, how have you been this last week? Good. Finished up the PBS gig for a while, so I've got my Saturday nights free, starting with this one, very important Saturday, coming up. For you, maybe. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll be sitting there ready for to just see something as it hits the internet. I'm sure you will, too. No? I'm busy. Oh, you'll be bu- That's I'm right. busy. I will not have a chance to be anywhere near a TV set this weekend. Well, so. I'll call and tell you what happens, so don't worry about oh, it. Oh, good. <laughs> send me a text. I'll spoil it all bit by bit. Yeah, I'll send you a text every five minutes. Anyway, I've been doing pretty well. Cool. Yeah. Well, I've been watching stuff. Uh, you let me being human, and I'm... Got about three-fifths of the way through there. Oh, good. I'm catching up on other things from 2009, including The Fattest Man in Britain, starring Timothy Spall. Oh, okay. It was I on ITV. We no. neglected to mention it when it was on, but it was on right before mm-hmm. Christmas. Anyway, this week there are many new premieres, and I hope everyone out there will have their video recorders on standby, because we'll tell you all about them in this week's episode, where we have news, what's on British TV this week, what's running in the United States, DVD releases, and a feature on the career of writer Stephen Moffat. Great Stephen Moffat. Now, I think our friend Jeff, after watching Coupling, the first few episodes, wanted Stephen Moffat to be confined to his house so that he could do nothing but write good television for the remainder of his natural years. But Well, Jeff was a big fan of Chalk, and we're going to talk yeah. about Chalk before that because we used to show those things. So he's been on my radar for quite a while, and we'll talk all about that. Jeff made the case that he, he thought we should have picked Coupling as the best sitcom of the last decade. You know, you picked space and I picked the IT crowd. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, what about coupling? I'm like, well, you know, that was in the running too, but you know, I just you know, I had to pick something else there, Jeff. You start your own podcast. Mm-hmm. Like he's listening to this. Uh, news this week, ITV cancels the bill I after know. 27 years. I got an email from one of our loyal listeners and he said he remembers watching the very first episode. The series will end this fall following ITV's decision to drop the long-running police drama. The move follows a major revamp that saw the producers relaunched as a weekly program in a post-watershed slot, in other words, at 9 o'clock. Producers Talkback Thames said they were, quote, devastated by a decision that, quote, 
may result in a significant number of redundancies for the company. ITV said it would invest the money it spent on the program, first seen on the channel in 1983, on new peak-time drama commissions. Set around the fictional Sun Hill Police Station in London, the bill began life as a one-off drama entitled Wooden Top. ITV was impressed enough to commission a weekly series that eventually became a thrice-weekly soap. The channel insisted that the move to X the show was a creative decision and not done to cut costs. Now, what does this remind you of, Chrissy? A, a once popular show, mm-hmm. been on the air for 27 years, moved to a bad time slot, and then suddenly canceled. Oh, does it mean it's going to relaunch then in 16 years? No, it won't mean 16. There'll be, there'll be the uh, TV movie okay. co-production with the Americans Books. after seven years. <laughs> and then another nine years after that, yes, it'll come back. The Bill in Space. Ever. That's right, there Bill in go. Space. <laughs> We're referring, of course, to Doctor Who. One of the first series that will take over the Bill's time slot next year will be a medical drama called Monroe, written by Peter Boker. Monroe, much like Hugh Laurie's character in House, will be a neurosurgeon who must solve medical cases. That sounds much like Hugh Laurie's character on House. Yes. I'm sure no one will notice any similarity. In other news, The Thick of It, the funny and caustic political drama starring Peter Capaldi, won several prizes last week at the Broadcasting Press Guild Awards, and then producer-director Armando Iannucci announced there will be a fourth season that will be shot later this year. Apparently, they are waiting to see who wins the election next month so they can mirror events in the series. And Iannucci is rumored to be working on a feature that would star Steve Coogan as Alan Partridge. But you didn't hear that from us. Where did you hear it from? Or did they? Are rumors about it? rumors. All rumors. right. Well, he's been speaking of a movie for years and years and years. So I think there's life in the old Partridge yet. We'll see. So what's on TV for the week of March 31st to April 6th? Wednesday, Carolyn Quentin's sitcom The Life of Riley continues on BBC One. Oh, Thursday, Have I Got News for You returns, this time on Thursday, to make way for Ashes to Ashes' new Friday night slot. It's the 39th series. Keep in mind they do two series a year. It hasn't been on since 1971. Lee Mack will be the host this week. Yes, Have I Got News for You, one of our favorite topical news quiz shows, hosted by Paul Burton and Ian Hislop. Or they're team, the captain. team captains, right. It used to be hosted by Angus Deaton, yeah. and now they have this rotating host situation. But we love Have I Got News For You. We do. I even got to watch a taping of it just before, a year before Angus was ousted. We went in 2001 and saw David Aronovich and Dom Jolly were the guests that week. And Has it always been on Fridays? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, but it did move. It was a BBC, BBC 2, two and then BBC, BBC 1. one. And... Now, that my introduction to this was... A video, an hour-long video, that was called Unbroadcastable. It was taped on the Have I Got News set, I believe, about 1995. And it was just done to make a buck and sell it. They didn't ever show it on television. It was just a video release with Team Captain's, um, well, it was had the original Angus, Paul, and Ian. But on Ian's team, he had Richard Wilson. And Eddie Izzard was on Paul's team, and it ran for just over an hour. And they showed some naughty clips, because I think this was before the whole water shed firming up or something. So they wouldn't seem that risque compared with what's shown regularly on the show nowadays. But in 95, it, it still was a little raunchier than they would have broadcast. And then at the very end, they had the video, the Tub of Lards video diary. So that was the first 
ever I saw have I got news for you, which we got our hands on because Eddie Azard was in it and didn't realize it was a regular show. And then when we found out it was a show, but it was off the air, we thought it had been canceled. We didn't realize my friend and I were trying to look into this, that it was going to be brought back for usually eight to eight or nine episodes, spring and fall. So we were very delighted when we found out it was still running. And then I met somebody who was a production assistant on the show, and she got us tickets. I met her going to another show that I'd just gotten tickets for on the internet. And the person I took had a fear of elevators. So they took us up the back route on the stairs rather than tell us to get just lost. And it turned out to be one of the production assistants who took us. And she remembered me when we emailed her later and she got us tickets to have I Got News For You. So that's how we got the tickets. I was living in England in 1993 and it had been on for a couple of years, but we had not heard of it. Mm -hmm. And we discovered, wow, what this great show. And I remember watching the Tub of Lard episode the night it went out. Roy Hattersley was supposed to be one of the guests, yeah. and he pulled out at the last minute. For the third time, he had done this, too. And so they produced a tub of lard, and that sat there next to Paul right. Merton for the whole show, and it was one of the funniest things I ever saw. As Angus said, imbued with many of the same qualities and likely to give much the same performance, we introduce a tub of lard. Roy Hattersley was a politician. And then he did finally make the show, and Paul said... Remember last time when you didn't turn up? Guess what we did? <laughs> As if he didn't know. Well, anyway, yeah, we love the show. I think it's still fresh as can be 20 years on. And look, and I like that it's on just twice a year. It makes it kind of an event. In, in two seasons a two year. Two seasons a year, of, yeah. Yes. Two months in the spring, two in the fall, leading up to Christmas. And hope it continues as long as they have fun doing it. Seems it will. Yep. Also on Thursday on BBC Three, Russell Howard's Good News continues. On Good Friday, QI on BBC One looks at geometry with guests Johnny Vegas, David Mitchell, Ogood, and Rob Brydon. I just saw a hilarious column in The Observer last Sunday by David Mitchell, and he talks about how people in forums, if they go on long enough, will eventually invoke Hitler or Nazis. And he says it would be better if people actually knew more about Hitler. Yes. And, and didn't resort to doing that. But it was a very funny column. Anyway, it's followed by the premiere of the third season of Ashes to Ashes with an eight-episode run that will be ooh, the last time we see Gene Hunt on TV. We did a feature last week on the actor who plays him, Philip Glenester. Give it a listen if you haven't already. And keeping it all on BBC One tonight, Friday Night with Jonathan Ross has Tina Fey plugging her new movie, as well as Chef Heston Blumenthal and actor Aaron Johnson. Saturday, the Doctor Who spinoff series K9 has its UK debut on the Disney XD digital channel at 4pm. The second episode will be shown on Sunday. This children's series, shot in Australia but set in England, has the famous robot dog from the 1970s in his own adventures reimagined in a CGI Egyptian-looking form. Although it's co-written by K9's original creator, Bob Baker, this is not a BBC production and has no official connection to the Doctor Who production office in Cardiff. So watch at your own peril. Because he'd written the episode The Invisible Enemy, he owns the copyright to the character. So every time they use it on Doctor Who... He gets a payment, and you see K9 created by Bob Baker and Dave Martin. And so he has the rights to go off and do his own little series. 
K9 will look in his classic look in the first half, and then he gets kind of blown up and kind of regenerates, and now he's all CGI and can fly around and do stuff. So it's it's a kid's program. Well, good. Woof, woof. Oh, do you want to do this part? You're the original Doctor okay. Who fan. Meanwhile, it begins the debut of the 11th Doctor Who, Matt Smith, at 6.20 p.m. on BBC One in the appropriately titled The 11th Hour though the episode is actually 65 minutes long. Woohoo! If you haven't already, you can watch the first 43 seconds online at either the official BBC website or at BBC America's. Stand by later in the show for a profile of new Doctor Who producer Stephen Moffat. Have you watched the 43 seconds? I don't. I haven't, no. Wow, so it'll be all fresh yeah, for you. Will do. I have to admit, the moment I'm most looking forward to in this is the new title sequence and the new theme music. I mean, after that, it's all a bit downhill. Yeah. No, not really. Well, you'll know it all because I'll be texting it to you. So, But I mean, how do they rearrange the music? That's what I want to know. I'm such a geek. Well, I have seen Matt Smith on WASI last week. Yeah, I saw that too. It, so. They showed a really good clip from Vampires in Venice with a really great little throwaway to the old series, which I bet you didn't realize what it was. Well, of course not, no. Okay. Yeah, in fact, I am so busy this weekend attending a science fiction convention here in Seattle that I probably won't get a chance to even watch Doctor Who until next Wednesday. It'll be after I record our next podcast. If I do manage to wait that long, the good news is I only have to wait three days for the next episode. There you go. So I missed it so last year. I'm so glad it's back. Yes. I love the Doctor Who time of the year. Well, we're definitely going to be there. And as usual, Doctor Who Confidential will be shown on BBC Three immediately following the 11th hour. Did you miss Have I Got News For You on Thursday night? Catch an extended repeat Have I Got Extra News For You Saturday night on BBC Two. Easter Sunday at 8pm, you'll have a choice about which mystery you want to watch. On BBC One, there's a new Jonathan Creek starring Alan Davies and Sheridan Smith called The Judas Tree in this 95-minute special that also guest stars Paul McGann. Well, hey. We're over on ITV One... The first of a two-part special of A Touch of Frost, the final one ever of the long-running David Jason detective series. It's called If Dogs Run Free, and it concludes Monday night. If you'd rather spend the evening watching cinematic blunders, check out Great Movie Mistakes on BBC Three Sunday night, hosted by Robert Webb. We'll be doing a feature on him next week, as a matter of fact. It'll be three hours of clips from sweaty cameramen getting caught in shot to wobbly scenery and from props that look like they've been made by the Blue Peter team to childlike spelling mistakes. This show has Hollywood banged to rights. Monday at 8 p.m. is the grand final of this year's University Challenge, and it's an Oxbridge face-off between St. John's College, Oxford and Emmanuel College, Cambridge. Jeremy Paxman asks the questions. I guess scumbag you didn't make it through this year. That's an old Young Ones reference. <laughs> we have Bastyr University in Seattle, and I always th think of it as Bastard College just because of the Young Ones. Oh, or did they go to Bastard College or Bastard University? It was one of them. But... It was Scumbag, wasn't it? No, it was. I believe it was Bastard College, and then there was Oxbridge, they called. The Hewlery, Stephen Fry, Emma Thompson, Ben Elton. I thought, sure, they were on Scumbag. No, we'll look at it. We'll look it up. One of us is right. <laughs> Channel 4's Comedy Gala at 9 p.m. Monday features some of the biggest names in British comedy in a show recorded at London's O2 Arena. It includes Alan Carr, Bill Bailey, Catherine Tate, 
David Mitchell, James Corden, Jonathan Ross, Lee Evans, Michael McIntyre, Noel Fielding, Rob Bryden, Ruth Jones, and Sean Locke. There's 24 in total, actually. Usual suspects, huh? Getting ready for the show, I pulled out a 2001 episode of Coupling, and at the very end, it had a trailer for the Comedy Award winner, Newcomer of the Year, and I swear it had a quick clip of Alan Carr, Sans Glasses. I'm pretty sure it was him. Tuesday, for fans, mourning the end of A Touch of Frost the previous night on ITV1, there's a one-hour documentary called Touched by Frost. Goodbye, Jack, with a behind-the-scenes look at the series. Why did they just call it A Touch of Frost Confidential? Oh, well. Uh, Shameless continues on Channel 4, Tuesday. On BBC America this week, Wednesday and Sunday, it's Channel 4's high school comedy, The Inbetweeners. Friday night, it's Chat Show Night with Friday Night with Jonathan Ross and The Graham Norton Show. Monday, it's Top Gear. And the second season of Survivors continues on Tuesday. Sunday, on PBS's Masterpiece Classic, will be Sharp's Peril, another adventure for Sean Bean, shot on location in India. The Discovery Channel continues the documentary series Life on Sunday. The Independent Film Channel runs the sketch comedy series Wrong Door, Tuesday and Saturday nights. On Adult Swim on Friday night, starting at midnight, is a double helping of The Mighty Boosh, followed by The Office, and then Look Around You. Garth Marenghi's Dark Place is at 5 a.m. Saturday morning. The Sci-Fi Channel begins running the BBC's Merlin series this week. You can catch up with Season 1 all day Thursday. These originally ran in the United States on NBC last summer. Season 2 makes its U.S. debut on Friday night. DVD releases. Judge John Deed. Former professional Martin Shaw stars in this series as a judge who fights crime. Go figure. The pilot and season one are available in this set. The Lord Peter Whimsey Mysteries, Volume 1, starring the late Ian Carmichael as Dorothy L. Sayers' detective, are available on DVD. Chrissy has a CD. I do. It's a radio play that ran just about a week ago in the UK on Radio 4, Murder in Samarkand. Did you hear about that? No. Well, it was commissioned originally as a film to be written by David Hare, who adapted The Hours. He writes film and a lot of plays as well, has for over 30 years, and to be directed by Michael Winterbottoms and starring Steve Coogan. Once he showed the original script, he found that he and Michael Winterbottom really differed in opinion on how the story should be handled. It's based on a true story and a book that came from a former ambassador to Uzbekistan who had spoken out because he felt that the UK and America were gaining confessions from so-called terrorists that had been gathered by torturing them out of the prisoners. And after several years, he was actually gotten rid of from his position, and he's currently unemployed and speaking out still. He's run for office a few times. This fellow's name is Craig Murray. Well, anyway, Steve Coogan was going to play Craig Murray, and Michael Winterbottom saw this as kind of a farce because Craig Murray is kind of a larger-than-life whiskey and wine-loving superhero type, and David Hare thought of it more of just a drama and kind of 
more reflection on torture. So they parted ways, and David Hare remade the script into a radio play, which was broadcast starring David Tennant about two weeks ago. David Hare was interviewed on Front Row, where he said that he's had three offers now to take this radio script and make it into a play, but he's waiting to see if perhaps it will end up as a film after all, even though he's no longer with the studio that has the film rights, but who knows what can happen. But I just thought, boy, Steve Coogan to David Tennant, that's quite a a change of actor there in your lead character role. Who knows? Steve Coogan may have played it completely straight. I mean, I don't know if Mm -hmm. he would have gone for wacky or not. He's worked with Michael Winterbottom a lot, Stephen Coogan. They're Mm -hmm. sort of like the Johnny Depp-Tim Burton partnership Mm -hmm. almost. But this is very, very well done. And I looked up Craig Murray today just to see. And it followed pretty closely his story. He actually had a mental breakdown and was airlifted back to the UK for treatment. And when he returned, he then had a heart attack, which was left out of the play. So they shortened that up a little bit. But the whole story of what happens to him and his family and marriage and things that happen, they're all true. Murder in Samarkand. Neat. Yep. It might even still be there on iPlayer if um, you have a look for it. It lasts for we'll a see. week, so if it yeah. was on more than seven it days ago. It was on then... fairly recently. I just downloaded it, so and it could be repeated as well. Who knows? You can find it somewhere. But it's Yes, it's I'm quite sure well the Tenet fans will uh, keep that archived forever. Yeah. Well, cool. I look forward to listening to that. Yeah, it was nice he was able to salvage it into something, and then he got a bit of press for it, too. BBC Radio is so awesome. I mean, they just do tons of drama and comedy and quiz shows. They get great people to do them, too. It's just... It's taken seriously as a medium there. Yeah, well, David Tennant's done a few plays over the years, and he always... Well, he actually did three series of a sitcom called Double Income No Kids Yet in the before his TV career really took off. And they're great, fun, half-hour little sitcoms for radio, but he's done one playing um, Claudius as an I, Claudius, and he did a very funny farcical show where Julia Davis played his wife for Christmas a couple of years ago. But I would have to say this was my favorite of all the plays of his I've heard. It was very well done. Well, cool. Yep. Thanks for recommending that. You won't admit you love me Our feature this week is on writer Stephen Moffat. This week sees the debut of Stephen Moffat's version of Doctor Who starring Matt Smith as the 11th Doctor. Stephen is a lifelong fan of the series who grew up on John Pertwee and Tom Baker stories and has written many award-winning episodes of Doctor Who as well as specials. But along the way, he's established himself as one of the premier comedy and drama writers in Britain, and we're going to take a look at his career. Stephen Moffat was born in 1961, the same year as me and Barack Obama, in Paisley, Scotland. After graduating college, he became a teacher for three years at a high school. Stephen seems to adhere to the write-what-you-know school of writing because his first three TV series are based directly on experiences in his life. See if you can figure out what they are. Through a stroke of luck, his father, Bill Moffat, a headmaster at his school, had met a television producer in the late 1980s and pitched the idea of a series about a school newspaper. The producer liked the idea, and Bill said they would have to hire his son, Stephen, to write it. 
Stephen wasn't completely new to drama. He'd written a play that had been performed at the Edinburgh Festival and a musical. And obviously he knew something about high school students. The producers loved his pilot script, and the series, to be called Press Gang, was commissioned by Central Television for the ITV network in 1989. Press Gang was a series starring and aimed at young adults, but the dirty little secret was a lot of grown-ups watched and enjoyed it too. It starred Julia Sawala as the paper's editor, Linda Day, and Dexter Fletcher as American exchange student Spike Thompson. Julia Swalla is now best known for Absolutely Fabulous, which doesn't come as any surprise when you find out that Abfab and Press Gang had the same director, Bob Spears. And he's also a veteran of directing such classics as Faulty Towers. Dexter Fletcher, who is really British, has appeared in Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, Band of Brothers, and most recently as the Smarmy Concierge on Hotel Babylon. And... Gabrielle Anwar, now best known for USA's Bird Notice, appeared in several episodes as well. Press Gang would run for 43 episodes over five years, all written by Stephen Moffat. It could tackle real issues with its mixture of drama and comedy and the on-again, off-again relationship between Linda and Spike. While Press Gang was in production, Stephen's first marriage was breaking up. Writing what you know, Stephen used this as the premise of his next series, Joking Apart, for the BBC about the rise and fall of a relationship between a comedy writer and his wife based on material from his actual life. I kind of suspect his wife was probably none too pleased. In this scene, set in a bedroom, things don't go quite as planned. You bastard! <laughs> You utter bastard! This is pointless, stupid and juvenile. Are you listening to this? A simple sorry, darling, would be sufficient. Can we lose the comedy routine? You don't like my material? Not since you became a double act. Sorry, show's over. It's okay. Anyone can have a flop. Bitch! It's better. Oh... You know, like, you know, when you're out with all your girlfriends and... Uh-huh. You start talking about sex and stuff. Mark, I won't tell them about this. No. <laughs> so, who was on the phone? What? Didn't I hear the phone ring when I was in the loo before we got all distracted? Oh, sorry, I completely forgot. It was Tracy for you. Oh, have I to phone her back? No, she said she'd hang on. Tracy? Hello, Mark. Do you think she was listening? Do you think she heard? So, Mark, how are you? <laughs> well, I certainly hope you had a good laugh at my sexual dysfunction. Oh, of course not. Did we, Robert? <laughs> Joking Apart ran for two seasons between 1993 and 1995. Employing techniques he would reuse on coupling, Stephen would unfold the story in a non-linear way with scenes from the beginning of the relationship, the good days, intercut with those from the end. Mark, the comedy writer played by Robert Bathurst, would often have imaginary sequences where he appeared in a comedy club doing stand-up 
based on what was happening in the scene, with which we could see what was going on in his mind. It was kind of a bit like Seinfeld there. They just kind of cut back and forth. The BBC didn't know what to do with the series. The second season was delayed for broadcast several times, and the ratings on BBC Two were never great, although Stephen conceded that a third series might have been too much in any case. What's interesting is that a fan of Joking Apart bought the video rights from the BBC for a DVD release and put it out on his own label, Replay DVD. He digitally remastered the show himself and even recorded his own commentary tracks featuring Stephen and the cast members. I have to say, that's loyalty, putting your mouth where your money is when you are a fan of something. Stephen had been pitching another series for a while, again, writing what you know, a school-based sitcom called Chalk. I loved Chalk. I thought it was hilarious, and David Bamber, as Deputy Headmaster Eric Slatt at Galfast High, can only be described as a cross between Basil Fawlty and Gordon Brittis. Slatt was a great comic monster, always allowing situations to deteriorate way past the point of salvage and then completely overreacting. Other teachers at Galfast included a ditzy music teacher who has imaginary students playing in an imaginary band, a P.E. coach into S&M, and the befuddled old headmaster with the unfortunate name of Richard Nixon. The actor playing Nixon passed away after the first season, and so the character was replaced by a new headmaster, a Mr. J.F. Kennedy. Only the new English teacher, Susie, played by Nicola Walker of Spooks, seemed normal. Right then, settle down, be quiet. Now, some of you may know, Mr. Humphrey of the English department, has died, which is, of course, terribly sad. (laughs) I'm confident, however, that our school will struggle on past this tragic incident as if absolutely nothing had happened of any consequence whatsoever and forget about the whole thing. I know that Golfast High will carry on down the fast track to academic excellence exactly as it did before and exactly as Mr Humphrey would have wanted. Perhaps we might even go that little bit faster with one less on board. In fact, quite honestly, to look on the bright side of this whole sorry occasion, if I'd had to choose a member of staff to die, I'd have chosen Mr Humphrey. Not, of course, that I'd given the matter any thought. I mean, I don't have any kind of death list. (laughs) That's just all a lot of silly talk based on what was, after all, a confidential memo. Anyway... On a personal note, I've had a lot of people over the last couple of days complaining that Mr. Humphrey was nothing but a hopelessly incompetent, incredibly fat, malingering old duffer. Well, what I say to these people is, he's been well punished for it. (laughs) Not that his death was any form of official punishment, I can assure you of that. I didn't kill Mr. Humphrey. That's no part of my duties here. No. If anyone punished him for the generally low standard of his work, it was our Lord. Although, obviously, I'm not suggesting that God is stalking the corridors of Galfast High, killing inefficient teachers. (laughs) Though perhaps if I was in the art department, I wouldn't be so confident. (laughs) I'll say no more. Anyway, Mr Humphrey will be buried on the 15th. Uh, cremated. What, all of him? We'll be there all day. <laughs> Chuck also ran for two seasons, both of which were broadcast in 1997. 
Some people might not have gotten the joke. The teachers and their unions were apparently up in arms over their treatment in the series, but, and in the end, the BBC stuck it on rather late in the evening. But for me, from that point on, Stephen Moffat was a name I would keep my eye on. He also wrote three episodes of the Don French black comedy anthology series, Murder Most Horrid. In this 1999 episode from the fourth season, called Elvis, Jesus, and Zack, Don played Jill Tanner, head of the obituaries department at Broadcast One. Facing cutbacks, she has a meeting with an unctuous new executive. So, obituaries. What are your plans for next year? Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe a, a pope? <laughs> What else? You see, it occurs to me whether it's possible for Harry to absorb your specialism into his news department as a whole. What exactly would we be losing? Uh, uh, uh well, uh, um, I do feel that there are times when a separate department is necessary. And when can you anticipate that next happening? Give me something to green light. I'm here to green light. I can't anticipate. Oh, dear. Uh, you see, I seem to be hearing that word, can't, quite a lot from you people. Are you sure it's can't? Classic Stephen Moffat. In 1999, Stephen had his first official association with Doctor Who, not counting a short story he contributed to an anthology put out by Virgin Books, when he wrote the comic relief special The Curse of the Fatal Death, which starred Rowan Atkinson as the Doctor and Julia Sawala as his companion. Jonathan Price played the master, and there were a number of big-name celebrity cameos, as well as an appearance by the Daleks. Fans have endured a lot of Doctor Who spoofs over the years, from Spike Milligan to Lenny Henry, and appearing as it, this did during the wilderness years of the 1990s, they weren't sure what to expect. But comic relief supremo Richard Curtis, who's writing an episode for Doctor Who this year, was very wise in commissioning superfan Stephen Moffat to write this special, and though it was filled with jokes... It didn't undermine the series itself, even though the Doctor was engaged to marry his companion, much to the disgust of the Master. And Julie Sawala's final speech about the Doctor was so heartfelt, only a fan could have written it. The Curse of the Fatal Death was very well received by both the fans and the public, and perhaps demonstrated to the BBC that there was still some life in the old series. But that would have to wait a few years. Have you seen Curse of the Fatal Death? Yes. By this point, Stephen Moffat had gotten remarried, this time to TV producer Sue Virtue. Sue's mother, Beryl Virtue, is the owner of Hartswood Films, maker of Men Behaving Badly and Coupling. Beryl was also responsible for bringing a number of British sitcoms to the United States back in the 1970s that became All the Family and Sanford and Son. We should do a feature on Beryl sometime. If only for her name. Beryl Virtue, that is a wonderful name. Hmm. But back to Stephen... Now happily married to Sue, which became the basis of his next series, The Wildly Successful Coupling. Probably one of the cleverest sitcoms ever, Coupling ostensibly is about the relationship between Steve and Susan, detecting a pattern here, and their four friends. But what is really explored is just how exactly men and women see and react to the same events. This was done in a number of interesting ways, such as doing an episode half in Hebrew, Repeating the same events three times over, but from a different perspectives. Okay, that's been done since Rashomon, but it's still a great dramatic device. And one of my favorites 
an episode done entirely with split screens showing the results after the breakup of Steve and Susan. It meant they had to shoot twice as much material than normal for the episode. It's brilliant stuff, and best of all, really funny. Oh, by the way, I've invited my parents for a late supper on Wednesday night. Here, if that's okay. Don't worry, I'll cook. Your parents, great. That'll be... great. What's so bad about our parents? Wednesday, that's tonight. I'm just getting out the courage, mate. Why? What do our parents do? They talk about sex. No! (laughs) They're incredibly open about everything. The whole family is Susan, too. They talk about sex like it's a completely normal thing. Are they insane? Parents have no business talking about sex. It's not their area. It's disgusting. Oh, it's like when you find your dad's magazines. Exactly. (laughs) Or you hear your parents doing it. Oh, yeah, I've been there. Or your mother starts making enormous sculptures of erections and filling the house with them. That's what I hate. I'm sorry. Tons of the bastards all over the place. Some of them were huge. We had to keep one of them in the garden shed. You grew up in a house full of erections. My mum said it was a celebration of love. Of love? That's a bit of a leap. She used to keep the ones that had gone wrong in a box. Under my bed. Trust me, you don't want to know about my nightmares. I went out with a girl once who made a sculpture of, uh, you know, Junior Patrick. Junior Patrick? Yeah. You call it Junior Patrick? Yeah, she said it was her best ever model. She said she'd never had to use so much material. Okay, we know. There's big, there's balance problem. And there's Bazooka Man. Well, no one to boast, boys, but she said that in all her years of sculpting, she'd never had so much room for the battery compartment. (laughs) Battery compartment? In a sculpture? Yeah, I was meant to ask her about that. As soon as she finished, I never saw her again. Right. Last I heard, she started up some kind of mail-order company. <laughs> you know what, though? <laughs> She'd misspelt mail. I think you may have been had, mate. And a lot more often than you realise. So what do you like about coupling? Well, you know, I've only seen the first season, but I thought it was sparkling and fun, and I loved the chemistry between the characters... And the jokes, and I just went along for the ride. It just seemed like a sitcom, but really, really well done. Yeah, well, it's pretty funny. I uh, watched a whole episode here to get ready for tonight, and just amazed at how he has all the different elements come together. We've often talked about what a disaster the American remake of Coupling was, even using Stephen Moffat's original scripts. I think, among other things, it was because the American actors were crap. The British cast were all excellent actors who could incidentally do comedy. I'd already been a fan of Jack Davenport since the great vampire series Ultraviolet, and he had such a great touch as Steve, constantly off-balance, yet completely believable. And the rest of the cast, Sarah Alexander, Richard Coyle, Kate Izzett, Ben Miles, and Gina Bellman, were all equally excellent, and you can see them all frequently on British TV, a testament to their ability. Coupling ran for four seasons between 2000 and 2004. BBC America runs it all the time. And in spite of a mixed reaction for his earlier comedies, it established Stephen Moffat as a name to reckon with in British comedy. And yet, what would he do next? Turn to drama, of course! 
Russell T. Davies had persuaded the BBC to resurrect Doctor Who for Saturday nights in 2005, and knowing Stephen was such a big fan, and a talented writer, of course, commissioned a two-part story from him set in World War II. The Empty Child and The Doctor Dances were highlights of the Christopher Eccleston season and went on to win a Hugo Award, the first of three for Stephen's episodes for the series. His next was the beautiful and sad The Girl in the Fireplace, where the Doctor meets and falls in love, a bit, with Madame Pompadour. The following season, he wrote the Dr. Light episode Blink, a budget-saving episode where David Tennant wasn't available because they're shooting two episodes at the same time to stay on schedule. Blink introduced the Weeping Angels, which, even though described by Stephen himself as the most crap invasion ever by a Doctor Who monster, they managed to take over one old house in London, but they were extremely scary and effective, and this episode, too, won a Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. My wife loves Blink. Mm-hmm. Really, She's like, you have to blink a hundred times a minute. How could you not blink? Blink one eye and then the other. (laughs) Yeah. Stephen also wrote the Children Need Special Time Crash in 2007 that had David Tennant's doctor meeting Peter Davison aboard the TARDIS. It, like the curse of the fatal death, was full of in-jokes, but also contained some real from-the-heart sentiment about the series as a whole. Stephen's fourth story, Silence in the Library and Forest of the Dead, was another rousing and popular adventure. Anything stand out to you from his Doctor Who stories? They were good. (laughs) I was kind of looking at some forums at the time, and some people didn't like the Doctor getting another love interest in the last two part, because they felt that there was just too much of Tennant falling in love and swooning and all the women loving him. Which which part of the episode was those? A forest of critters that eat you alive, and that one in the fourth season. River Song. Oh, falling. Oh, right. But he never really did fall in love with her. She was like in love with him, but he didn't really recognize who she was. Yeah, so evidently that adventure happened off screen. Oh, I think we're going to see real soon. Really? Because I always was under the impression, she seemed to recognize him right away. I was under the impression that she'd had it with 10, not 11, and then he'd. she was seeing an earlier... Stay tuned. Okay, all right. You're looking at cast lists on the Internet Movie Database or something there. (laughs) I I hear spoilers. Ah. Uh, During all this, Stephen wrote the epic six-part miniseries Jekyll, updating the classic The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde story for the modern day with James Nesbitt in the lead role. The first time I saw Jekyll, I didn't know how long it ran for. When I watched it on BBC America, I thought it was a six half-hour episodes that they had edited together into hour-long compilations. And I assumed it was just three hours long. So imagine my surprise when I got the end of episode three and it just kept going. Mm -hmm. That's what I call a great series. What do you say I'll give you three goes? Goes? With the knife. I'll just stand here and you can give it your best shot three times. And afterwards, once you're done, I'll break your neck. The what? Trust me, the neck's good. Quick for you, easy for me. Everybody's happy. Billy, just go! That's an option. I'd consider that. Because quite honestly... I'm only in this to do your girlfriend. <laughs> that was one. Billy, just leave! Ooh, I think she wants to be alone with me. <laughs> okay, one more go. Make it a good one. Billy, please! Billy, that's a good name. I might use that name when you're finished with it. 
which is going to be any second now. Okay. Let's make it easy. Thickest plot. Relax. Take your time. You've got the rest of your life. Oh well, Billy, thanks for competing. You've been great. But it's time to say goodnight to the folks at home. Are you ready, Billy? Here comes God! The truth is. Are you listening, Billy? The truth is, if I'm being honest, if I'm not winding you up, I don't get a lot of pleasure out of killing children. But I get enough. What do you remember, Rob Jekyll? I always enjoy the quality of the writing, and I like James Nesbitt. First, I thought he was kind of cursed with always being James Nesbitty, but then I've seen him in some straight roles, too, like in the film Millions. So I, I understand he can tone down the James Nesbittiness and, and just play different roles as well. But I thought this one seemed just sort of written right for him. It was fun to watch. He played a sort of similar character in The Baker's Tale, The Butcher's Tale. It was one of the updated Canterbury Tales, the one that had Billy Piper in it. And he shows up as a mysterious stranger in, in town and completely messes up her life. Haven't seen those yet. Oh. Got him. <laughs> I said a few weeks ago on the podcast that the one thing I really liked about Jekyll was Stephen Moffat's handling of the female characters. But I also have to admire the way he unpacked the entire Jekyll mythos, from the source of his dual identity to the logical outcome that if such a Superman could actually exist in today's world with today's technology. You can't sustain a six-hour series, that's the equivalent of three movies, if you don't have some substantial and original ideas to keep the audience interested. In 2007, another Steven, Steven Spielberg of Hollywood, came calling for Mr. Moffat and said he was the man who had to write a series of movies based on the comic book character Tintin. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, Steven wrote the first movie, but then had to bow out of the second and third film when the opportunity of a lifetime arose. What could that be, Ryan? We'll never know if this was some sort of master plan by Stephen Moffat, should he get the chance to be able to produce his favorite series ever, Doctor Who. But it certainly didn't hurt. And when it was announced that Russell T. Davies would be leaving the series along with David Tennant, fans were hoping that their favorite writer would get the nod to replace him. And sure enough, the BBC announced in May 2008 that beginning with the fifth season of The Revival and the introduction of The Eleventh Doctor, who was at that time was yet uncast, Stephen Moffat would be the new producer of the series. I had a theory, and it was confirmed in an interview I heard earlier today with Stephen Moffat on Radio 4, that he uses his two sons, aged 8 and 10, as sounding boards for ideas, monsters, and even episode titles. One came up with the one that's going to be used for episode 5 this year. What an amazing advantage to have your target audience in your own house. I don't recall any of the earlier producers having children. I could be wrong. But Stephen gleefully admits that they are an influence on what he writes. I think he just pulls them every year and says, what scares you? Oh, shadows, uh, statues, zombies, and instant story. There you go. Because he, he loves scaring kids. I think that's... And what, things what, in the dark that gobble you up alive? Sure. But I think that's always his starting point, saying, if I scare the kids, I've got them. And then just running a, a cracking yarn on top of that. In Moff We Trust is the motto of a, lo a lot of fans use. 
And based on his track record, you have to have a lot of confidence that he is exactly the right person for the job. Every Doctor Who fan has imagined how they would run this series if given a chance. Some of us even make our own fan videos. You also need to be a skilled writer who understands television and who better than Stephen Moffat. He's on record for saying he intended to hire an older actor to be the 11th Doctor to establish that authority he felt the character should instantly convey, like during the Pertwee and Tom Baker years. However, as soon as 27-year-old Matt Smith walked into the audition, Moffat had to rethink his plans because Smith clearly was the best choice. Or so we hope. Stephen Moffat is also involved in the revival of Sherlock Holmes, which we mentioned a few shows back. This modern reinvention of the series called Sherlock will star Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. A pilot written by Stephen was filmed last year, and three further stories are being made under the supervision of Mark Gaddis, a name familiar to Doctor Who fans for scripts and appearances he has made in the new series. I just saw Benedict Cumberbatch in Small Island. It's going to be on Masterpiece Classics in a few weeks, and I can totally see him as Sherlock Holmes. Oh, good. That should be fun. Meanwhile, Stephen Moffat is writing six of the 13 episodes of Doctor Who's Season 5, as well as overseeing all aspects of the production as the showrunner. A Christmas special for 2010 has already been commissioned, as well as a sixth season for 2011. Yay! So barring some terrible disaster, I think we're in for a long run of excellent Doctor Who stories from the talented Mr. Moffat. Very exciting. It is. Perhaps. 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 Next week, we follow the comedy careers of David Mitchell and Robert Webb, who have two shows coming up on BBC America, their sketch series, That Mitchell Webb Look, and Peep Show. Love them. Should be fun. You said they might be the modern Fry and Laurie. Yeah, there's a lot of parallels there and where they met and what they did, awards they won at the schools. and That should be great. If this is your first podcast, why don't you go check out our website at www.britishtvpodcast.com. You can find links to headlines, our show notes, what's on TV this week, and an archive of our previous 25 episodes. And you can even send us feedback at feedback at BritishTVPodcast.com. I've got a lot of things to watch this week. I'm sure you'll be keeping an eye for, for that Jonathan Creek as well. I know you'll be all excited about Doctor Who. It'd be kind of weird if you've seen it and I haven't next week, but who knows? Maybe I might have seen it. I don't know. I, I suspect you will have seen it. But, you know, if I get busy and I'm working on the podcast, you know, if I, if I have to wait till Wednesday, I wait till Wednesday. You know, I've waited this long. What's a few more days? Yep. You can listen to the CDs all alone you here. Yes. I can put them on my iPhone. So we'll be back next week with our look at Robert Webb and David Mitchell and the news and reviews and the usual stuff of what's on. Happy viewing. And we'll be back with show 27. Next week, see ya. Bye-bye.